good morning. Would we'll turn your Bible to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We'll be looking at verses 11 to 14. We are beginning our Sunday evening services back tonight. Uh, we, that's right. We got one happy. Um, <laughs> we can have one more. We'll have a church. <laughs> but tonight is a special service. Adam Horbach's ordination service, and we'll be back into Jeremiah next week. So we'll be gathering in here tonight, so please come out. It's a special time. Uh, he will only be ordained to the ministry one time, and, and it's really an encouragement when God's people come out to, uh, to share their support and love for those who are about to be on the front lines of gospel ministry. Gospel ministry is a call to take on the domain of darkness with the sword of the Spirit. And uh, these are perilous times, if you haven't noticed. So please come out if you can and encourage Adam and his family. Well, if you would look with me in Ephesians 1. Now, keep in mind, the, the key to understanding the first verses here, 3 to 14, is verse 3, where he, the Apostle Paul breaks out in praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, what he is seeking to do, this is a letter that is filled with commands, but he's not in a hurry to get to those commands. There will be 39 commands in chapters 4 to 6, but he recognizes until your heart is warmed to God and his gospel, until you've been enthralled by the living God you will not be prepared to obey him in love. And so the first three chapters, he is seeking to capture your awe. This is an awe rescue mission in these first three chapters. Not the least of which is these first verses in 3 to 14. Well, notice in verse 11, we've looked at the previous verses over these previous weeks. In verse 11... He says, in him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, and that is the believing Jews, might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13 in him you also, that is, these believing Gentiles in this church in Ephesus, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as Paul is teaching us here. Through the Son and by the Spirit. Lord, we love this Trinitarian sentence. And we just ask right now that in your Son and by your Spirit, you would teach us, Lord, that you would enthrall us with your glory that we know supremely in the face of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, Packer, who died three months ago, uh, in a book called In Step with the Spirit, said that the Holy Spirit's 
distinctive new covenant role is to fulfill a floodlight ministry in relation to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what he writes. I remember walking to a church one winter evening to preach on the words, He shall glorify me, from the Gospel of John. Seeing the building floodlit as I turned a corner and realizing that this was exactly the illustration my message needed. When floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you're meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. It's as if the Spirit stands behind us throwing light over our shoulder onto Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message is never look at me, but always look at Him and see His glory. Listen to Him and hear His word. Go to Him and have life. Get to know Him and taste His gift of joy and peace. Such wise and powerful words from J.I. Packer. Now, even though the Holy Spirit, who came to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is equal in essence and power and glory to the Father and the Son, there is an order in the Godhead. That's why we sing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is an order. And that's why you could say verse Verses 3 to 14, which is one sentence in the original language, is akin to a symphony, if you've ever been to a symphony. The first movement of this symphony begins with election by which God has chosen to bless His people with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We saw that the first week in verses 3 to 6. The second movement of this symphony is the accomplishment of this purpose through the redeeming work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that in verses 7 to 10. Well, the third and final aspect, the third and final movement is the one we're going to look at today. How these blessings that God has ordained for His people and been achieved by the Son are applied to us by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the spiritual blessings that Paul speaks about in verse 3 in Jesus Christ comes to us like this. We are chosen for adoption by the Father. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son. And as we're going to see, we are sealed for our inheritance by the Holy Spirit. And that's why Herman Bovic, the great 
19th century theologian, was correct when he says that after creation and the incarnation, of course, when we talk about the incarnation, the Son of God taking on human flesh and coming to obey and suffer as a man, the incarnation speaks to his conception in the womb, to all to the point to where he's ascended to the Father after his cross and his resurrection from the grave, after creation and the incarnation, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the third great work of God. Now that's good. That's good theology there from Bavik. Now verses 11 to 14, the text we're in today, gives us the third of four reasons why Paul begins this long Greek sentence with praise. It's because God in Christ and by the Spirit has given us an imperishable inheritance in Jesus Christ. That brings us to verse 11, the blessing of an inheritance in Christ. Notice in verse 11, in Him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who walks, works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, note that phrase at the end, according to the counsel of his will. If you'll remember back in verse 1, the second part of that, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. In verse 6, we saw, or verse 5, rather, it says that we were adopted as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And then in verse 9, we saw he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. So we see this prevalent theme in this first chapter. God's will, God's purpose being worked out. And we saw last week the hope of verse 10, which is the high point of Scripture. The high point of Scripture is Ephesians 1.10. God's purpose that has been revealed to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. In other words, to bring all created things that have been broken and fractured and distorted by sin and wickedness back to the main point for which it was created in the first place. We see this in verse 10. It's grounded by the counsel of God's will. Now, verses 3 to 14 this one sentence touches on some of the most essential doctrines of the faith. We see the doctrine of God in verses 3 to 14. We see the Trinity in verses 3 to 14. We see election. We see the work of Christ, his redeeming work, his atoning work. We see the forgiveness of sins. We see the gospel. We see the purpose of God in history. All there in this one sentence. And so in verse 10, again, God is summing up all things in Christ. He's fixing it. He's making the sad things come untrue. That's what he's doing in Christ. And now, here in verse 11, even now, Paul is saying, he is making everything work out according to this very purpose, according to the counsel of his will. And that's why Paul here, notice in verse 11, he uses... The present tense to say that God is working out. He works out. That's present tense. 
That's not future. That's not past. He is presently. He works out all things according to the counsel of his will. God's plan, in other words, is for the present time. We, we will see a consummation when Christ returns. But we're not having to wait for that consummation. God's plan is for the present time, which includes our obtaining our inheritance now. Now, the fullness of that inheritance will come in the consummation. But we are obtaining our inheritance now, he says, which signals that the plan of verse 10, where God is restoring all things in Christ, is underway. Now, this concept of inheritance, we've obtained this inheritance. It is found throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, Israel had an inheritance. And here in the New Testament, we see it often with the Apostle Paul, inheriting the kingdom of God. Inheritance is a wonderful, glorious promise. And, and Peter will say of this inheritance. And remember when Peter was writing uh, to uh, the churches in Asia Minor, uh, he was writing to people who were suffering. He, were, he was writing to people who were under the thumb of an overreaching government. People who were under severe strain and persecution uh, from government. And he says to, to these believers who had even lost material things, who had lost jobs because they refused to bow the knee to Caesar, he says this, reminding them that what they truly have in Christ cannot be taken away. He says, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given you new birth into a living hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and get this, and into an inheritance, into an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you. Peter's saying the, the, the things that really matter cannot be taken away for the believer. Now, that truth may not move us as it should when our lives are really good here. But the reality of an eternal inheritance is the only thing that can bring true happiness if you are in your sane mind on your deathbed. It's the only thing. Yesterday, Leah Huff, and you, some of you may remember Leah Huff. She is a member here, but she's in a very difficult place with her health. And so she moved to Florida several months ago, and she's under the care of her daughters. Her daughter called me yesterday and said, I, I need you to pray over my, my mother. She wants to hear your voice. And so I got Leah on the phone, and I prayed for her, and she said, Pastor, I feel guilty for wanting to go and see Jesus. And I said, no guilt there. No guilt there. I said, that is absolutely the mark of a believer. That's actually the reality that you, your body's not physically healthy, but you are spiritually healthy. You are longing to see the presence of Christ. You're longing to be in his presence and see his face. And he, she began to speak about the inheritance that she knows she doesn't deserve. It's an inheritance 
that has been purchased for her. It's all of grace that came through redeeming work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Leah recognizes that all the other things in her life that she's delighted in that are not connected to the kingdom of God at this present moment is all monopoly money. All the things that she's delighted in that are not directly related to the things of God, the kingdom of God, and the triune God, she recognizes them for what they are on her deathbed. It's all monopoly. It's all an illusion. John Owen, speaking on that very thing, says, Look at the things of this world. Wives, children, possessions, estates, power, friends, and honor. How desirable to the thoughts of most men. But he who has obtained a view of the glory of Christ will, in the midst of all of them, say, Whom I have in heaven but you. And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. Paul recognizes this. That's why he's praising God for this inheritance that has been purchased and is centered upon the Son of God. And again, Paul grounds this inheritance in sovereign grace. Notice again in verse 11, it's a term that many don't like. But again, I did not. Cut and paste this in your Bible. (laughs) Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, having been predestined. Now, without this doctrine, the outcome is all but sure. Without this doctrine, the outcome is not secure. That's why Acts 4.28, Luke says the cross was predestined. The cross had not been predestined. It may not have happened, but it was predestined by God. And so it was secure. It was sure to happen. William Hendrickson says neither fate nor human merit determines our destiny. And I find that very hopeful. There's a Christmas song, If the Fates Allow. Well, that wasn't written by the original author of that song. It was changed to tame it for secular people. This is a glorious doctrine, and yet we treat it as if it is something to be ignored or swept under the table. Um, This week, I read from an article in Founders Journal by Reagan Marsh. And the title of the article was Every. Listen to this. Every hair numbered. Every tear counted. Every day ordained. Every race, speaking about the race set before us, the the lives that, that we live. Every race marked out. Every saint chosen. Every history written. Every providence governed. Every decree unchallenged, every circumstance subjected. In other words, subjected to the the rule of God. Every ruler 
appointed. Every purpose, certain. Every pain, measured. Isn't that hopeful? Every trial, specified. Every atom, obedient. Every detail, designed. Every opportunity, afforded. That is so hopeful. Indeed, our destiny is according to the one. Notice again in verse 11, we have to allow the text to form and shape our theology. We cannot allow what we consider to be sensible in our fallen state to create reality. Scripture has to form our views on things. We get into a lot of trouble when we don't do that. Notice, he works out everything according to the purpose, according to the counsel of his will. That word works, in fact, is is the word from energeo. It's where we get the word energize, like the energizer bunny. God is working out all things according to the counsel of his will. It's the word we see in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will complete it. How do we know that he will complete it? Because that work is the work of a God who is sovereign. Now, of course, this doctrine all bring, always brings into the question the issues of, of tragedy and, and, and even evil. But we need to understand here that Scripture never blames God for tragedy or evil. Now, that doesn't say God is not sovereign over these things in some mysterious way. But God's relationship to that which is good, there's an asymmetrical relationship between the way God relates to good and the way God relates to that which is evil. But we know that the cross is the most heinous evil act in the history of the world. It's the greatest tragedy in the history of the world. And yet we know that God was sovereign even over the cross. And so Scripture gives us, gives the people of God... The doctrine of divine sovereignty as a means of comfort, as a means of assurance that evil will not triumph in the end. That's why the scriptures give us this glorious doctrine and that God's good and God's wise purposes will prevail in spite of what we might see empirically. And again, this does not undermine human responsibility. The moment your understanding of sovereignty undermines human responsibility, you're out of balance. There are 40 commands in Ephesians. 40. That means we are responsible agents. We are not puppets. We are not robots. But wouldn't we all agree, even if we cannot understand this mystery, and no one can, Even though we cannot understand these things, we all agree that a God small enough to be understood is a God who isn't big enough to be worshipped. Well, notice in verse 13, though we may have mystery with regard to human responsibility and the relationship with divine sovereignty, what is not a mystery is why God... God's purposes are being worked out. Notice in verse 13. 
he says, or verse 12 rather, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, this is the first statement in Ephesians that emphasizes human responsibility. The responsibility here is to hope in Christ. Now, in the original language, there's a definite article. The word the is missing in our English, or at least the ESV. Literally, it's those who are the first to hope in the Christ. In other words, there is exclusivity here. It's, truth is narrow. Truth is always narrow. Uh, we live in a post-modern world that says, you know, you've heard about this uh, term called standpoint epistemology. Standpoint epistemology is essentially this. Truth is what I feel from my standpoint. Well, imagine a world where that, that prevails. I, I've often wondered, these people who claim that, do they want a surgeon who believes that? <laughs> do they want a pilot who's landing a plane who believes that? Well, no, truth is very narrow. It doesn't mean we're narrow-minded, but truth is very narrow-minded, or very narrow. And here it says, we were the first to hope in the Christ. This speaks to our responsibility. And in particular case here, this is the first, this is the, the believing Jews, and we're going to see why that's important in just a moment. And the reason our hope is centralized and directed on the Christ. Paul has already told us he's the only one who has secured redemption. He's the only one. Outside of the Christ, there is no redemption. There's only one who has come as the Son of God, God in human flesh, and took the wrath of God in the place of sinners. There's only one who was raised from the grave. That's why he is the only way into salvation. And by his redemption and our salvation, Paul says, God's glory is praised. In other words, God's glory is magnified by and centered upon Jesus Christ and his work. That's how the scripture lays it out. God's glory is magnified just like the moon magnifies the sun. God's glory is magnified by and centered upon Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 13, Paul is going to give us the, the fourth and final reason why he began this sentence with praise. And this is beautiful stuff here. Notice uh, in verses 13 to 14, we see the blessing of the down payment of our inheritance in Christ. So he speaks about the inheritance in verses 11 and 12, but he says we don't have to wait until we die to receive our inheritance. We have the down payment of that inheritance even now. Notice in verse 13. He says, In him you also, verse, thir uh, verse 13, In him Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, human responsibility, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so you also here are Gentile believers. Most of us in here are Gentile believers. Not all of us, but most of us. 
And we're going to see the reason that's important, especially in chapters 2 and chapter 3. But I want you to note the order of this conversion, of our conversion. Notice, they heard the word of truth. And once they heard the word of truth, they believed. No one is saved apart from hearing the word of truth. Paul says elsewhere in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let me just drag this to parents for a moment. You want your children to be converted to Christ and to be lifelong Christ followers. Make sure that they hear the word of truth. Make sure you have them in a place availing them to themselves to the, to the means of grace. I've told my kids, until they leave home, they have no choice on whether they will be in church. They need the word of Christ. They need to hear the gospel. Because my children are as sinful as any of these kids in here. And so are their parents. We need to hear the word of truth. And notice, this is consistent with Scripture. Peter says, you were born again not by the imperishable seed or by the perishable seed, but you were born again by the imperishable Word of God. James 1 says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the Word of truth. Now, in first century Ephesus, there were some close to 50 gods and goddesses in the culture. In the United States, we have more than that. And all of these gods and goddesses claimed to be the truth. Of course, they were false gods, but their adherents claimed that they were the truth. On top of that, there were these, all these different philosophies in the day that laid claim to providing knowledge of the truth, just like today. With critical race theory, one of those common philosophies that are floating around that's completely divorced from the gospel. And, And in this context, Paul does not hesitate to insist that the good news of Jesus Christ is the only gospel of your salvation. Notice again, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Literally, the good news of your salvation. Definite article. There's only one gospel. There's only one good news of your salvation. And what is that gospel? It's it's the message that we all need to hear every day of our lives. We never grow past the gospel. It's, It's the message that every unbeliever needs to hear. The gospel is this. God is infinite in his holiness and righteousness and justice and truth. He has to punish sin. Imagine a government that does not punish crimes. It would be chaos. There would be no retribution. Every man for himself. It would be utterly chaotic. It would be in an insane world. So our God is so good that he has to punish sin. Well, that's bad news for sinners. And we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet God in his grace, God in his wisdom has devised a plan where he can be just and punish our sin and yet save the sinner through a substitute. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes as our substitute. And as our substitute, he lives in our place. 
He worships in our place. He loves in our place because we, we do not worship the true living God naturally. We do not love naturally. We do not obey naturally. He came as our substitute. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. And then this righteous one went to the cross and God's just judgment was poured out, secured on the Son. And God raised him from the grave. And everyone who trusts in him for salvation, their sins will be forgiven. Past, present, and future. And what that does for a believer, when you, when you have received that kind of grace and mercy, it changes you. It changes you forever. This is the gospel of your salvation. And notice, when they heard that gospel, they believed that gospel. That is your responsibility, to believe that gospel. You can't say, well, God's sovereign. I'll believe it if, if, if he wants me to believe it. No, your responsibility is to believe that gospel. This is the only message for salvation. If you do not believe that gospel, the scripture says when you die, you will live in eternal judgment, eternal torment. This is the only message for salvation. And having believed, notice it says they were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. I love that. So what is he referring here to? First of all, uh, sealed. That, that, that's in the passive voice. It's not something we do. It's something God the Spirit does. He seals us. And, and it, it's something he alone can do. And, and it's so significant that it drives home really four truths. Let me give them to you. Security. First and foremost, security. When you trust in Christ, you are sealed with the Spirit that is the promise of security and the preservation of eternal salvation. You will not be unsealed. You're kept by the power of God through faith. Authentication, genuineness, the identification of ownership. All of these are captured by this verb to be sealed. Now, this sealing of which Paul is referring to, uh, the, any first century citizen would have understood it requires some kind of cultural competency to recognize what he's talking about here. So he's referring to an official mark, an official identification that would have been stamped on a letter or on any kind of uh, official contract, okay? And that document that was stamped was thereby officially under the authority of the one whose stamp was on the seal. Now that is a glorious truth for us. When you believe, God stamps you. He stamps you with a seal. Which means he takes on ownership of your life. He takes on the care of your life. You're under his care. No matter what happens in this culture, you're under the care of God. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that's why when Paul says he is the promised Holy Spirit, that is glorious news, that promise. In fact, 
The Old Testament prophets spoke about that promise. That's why he says it's the promised Holy Spirit. He's referring back to the Old Testament when the, the prophets were speaking about a day of the Lord. When God would make the sad things come untrue. And for instance, in Joel, Joel chapter 2, listen to these words. Verse 28, Joel is speaking. The main theme of Joel is about the day of the Lord. When God judges his enemies and he saves his people and he makes the sad things come untrue. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All mankind. Every tribe and tongue. Which is a fulfillment of the promise made to David. Which is a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. That through the seed, all the nations would be blessed. And then notice in verse 32, that same passage. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Beautiful. Now, when was that fulfilled? When was that fulfilled? Well, we know. It was at Pentecost because it's these, this very text in Joel that is picked up by Peter when he preaches that sermon at Pentecost. Verse uh, Acts 2.14, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give here to my words. For these peoples, who are the peoples? All the different nations are represented there, right? These peoples are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's the third hour of the day. But this was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel 28 through verse 32. And a great multitude believed. How many? Verse 41 of Acts 2. 3,000. 3,000. And Paul is saying, let's go back to our text. Paul is saying that this is all a part of God's plan to sum up all things in Christ. This is all a part of God's plan to unite all things in Jesus Christ. The Spirit, in other words, has come to apply the all-sufficient work of Jesus to sinners. And moreover, because of this sealing, he's our guarantee. Notice in verse 14. Who, that is the promised Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, I love guarantees. There's not many in life, not in a broken and fallen world. Who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? Now, Paul has moved from the pronoun we, referring to Jewish believers, uh, to you also. There he's speaking about the Gentile believers to our Jews and Gentiles inheritance which both groups share. We'll see that in chapter 3, verse 6. And so he's anticipating a theme we're going to see in chapter 2. The reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles through this one man, Jesus Christ. Okay? But this guarantee, I love this word, because again, we just don't have many. Guarantee is used three times. This word is used three times in the New Testament. And all by the Apostle Paul. And all three times it refers to the Holy Spirit. Baptists don't like to talk about the Holy Spirit. It makes us nervous. All right? But this guarantee is provided by the sealing of the Spirit. 
Now, in that day, uh, maybe your translation reads a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Uh, that, that's really a good rendering of this verb, erabon. It, it, it functioned as a down payment, all right? And so God has given his people, think about a, an engagement ring. Now, that's not a great analogy because a, a, an engagement ring can be taken away. This, this is a guarantee. And so God has given his people the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He has sealed us with the Spirit, with this anticipation and assurance that the full inheritance is coming. Think about these words from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5. Paul, he's speaking here about um, our glorification, where we put on our, our, our immortality. He says these words in 2 Corinthians 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing, that is glory, is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And though that inheritance we will receive undoubtedly includes the blessing of eternal fellowship with God, unhindered by our sin. Isn't that a glorious hope to think about that? Because the Spirit presently indwells us, now we can enjoy the first fruits of our inheritance. Right now, no matter what your circumstances are. Because let me ask you a question. Is the Holy Spirit God a very God? Yes. Which means He's omnipotent. The Holy Spirit is omnipotent. Which means that no matter your circumstances, right now, you can enjoy the first fruits of your inheritance. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Every reality that our hearts long for. The assurance of God's love. Peace in our conscience, joy from the Holy Spirit, an increase in grace and perseverance till the end. That is ours as a down payment for an inheritance to come. And knowing this and remembering this, it protects us from two errors. Two very prevalent errors in our fallen state. The error of thinking, first of all, that true joy... In the Lord is only in the future. That's just not true. You have the first fruits now. You can have joy. You can have kindness and gentleness. You can have peace. You can have love in your heart right now because of the presence of the Spirit. And secondly, that our present circumstances is all that there is. Well, that's just not true because the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing a fullness of our inheritance. But having redeemed us in the Son, the Father will not fail to safeguard us until we arrive safely to heaven. He will not fail. We are kept by the power of God through faith. And He does that through the indwelling Holy Spirit who will maintain our faith. In Jesus Christ. And if we avail ourselves to the means of grace, He will strengthen our faith until we arrive into glory. In other words, the assurance for everyone who believes the gospel is the, let's just kind of summarize all this sentence together, 
The assurance we have for those of us who have believed the gospel is the irreversible election of the Father, the irreversible redemption of the Son, and the irreversible indwelling and sealing of the Holy Spirit. That's why we are secure. And all, notice the last phrase of this sentence that began in verse 3, to the praise of His glory. The Apostle Paul began this sentence with praise. And when Paul began to speak of God's blessings to us in Christ, he went back before the creation of the world to his eternal purpose. He showed us then that the will of God unfolded itself in history first in the redemption secured by the Son and then in the work of the third person of the Godhead who applies that work to every individual. In a sense, let's go back to J.I. Packer's opening words. The most important thing we could say about the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a whole lot of things we could say about the person of the Holy Spirit. But in a sense, the most important thing we could say about the work of the Holy Spirit, who again is equal in essence and power and glory with the Father and the Son, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. But maybe the most important thing we could say about the work of the Spirit is that He came to glorify the Father in the Son. And that's why Jesus, or John says these words, Jesus actually, in John 15, verse 26, when the Helper comes. Don't you love that? Do you need a helper? Yes, you need a helper. I'll answer that question for you. You need a helper. We're broken and we live in a broken world. When the helper comes. How tender are those words? When the helper comes. And by the way, he has come. He will bear witness about me. He will bear witness about me. That's why he came. Verse 13 of chapter 16 When the spirit of truth comes, not only is he our helper, he's the spirit of truth. He will guide you in all truth. Now, what is that truth? Verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's what the spirit came to do. And this is the plan, Paul says, by which God is going to unite all things in Jesus Christ. There's the plan. Achieved by the Son and now administered by the Spirit. And that's why Robert Letham rightly points out in his systematic theology that the Spirit inseparably continues the ministry of the Father and the Son. Inseparably continues the ministry of the Father and the Son. He was sent in the place of the physical presence of Jesus. Now, Christ is present, but that's why he said, it's better that I go away. He was sent in the place of the physical presence of Jesus. And from this, we can be certain that anything that distracts us from the person and the work of Jesus Christ is not of the Spirit. Anything 
Conversely, wherever Christ is exalted, whether in a church, a pulpit, in a marriage, in a home, in the workplace, wherever Christ is exalted, there the Spirit is at work. You can be sure of that. And again, let's remind ourselves of what J.I. Packer said the Spirit came to do as we close. He came to say to all of us, look at Him. Look at Him. See His glory. Listen to Him. Hear His word. By the way, how do we hear His word? Yes, preaching, but having an open Bible in the home. You're not going to hear him if your Bible's closed. Go to him. Have life. Get to know him. And taste his gift of joy and peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Son. Thank you for the Spirit. Thank you for your plan that is centered on your Son. Thank you that your son has come and worked redemption by his blood. Thank you that your spirit has come to apply that work of redemption. So that all things might be united under the lordship, under the the reign, the kingship, the authority of the risen Christ. Indeed, the ascended Christ. I pray that you would take the words of this sermon and you would stir the hearts of every believer here that we might love you more, the triune God. And I pray that you would take the words of this text, the word of the truth of the gospel, and for those who do not yet trust in Jesus, Lord, that you would work faith and repentance in them unto eternal life. We ask these things in the name, the matchless name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, we declare him as Lord in Christ by your spirit. Amen.